Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. The coronavirus pandemic has obviously altered many aspects of our society, but one in particular has been the way in which consumers think about healthcare and receive healthcare services. With millions of healthcare consumers looking for a way to see their physician without needing to leave their home, telemedicine has become a crucial conversation. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, emergency medicine physician and chief medical officer at Sumas Global, Dr. Mary Mulcair, joins us to discuss the importance of telehealth moving forward. Welcome to the Healthcare Happy Hour. Do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Mary Mulcair. I am the chief medical officer for Sumas Global, which is a virtual care platform that specializes in specialty care. We're sort of a digital front door to accessing those expert opinions and basically taking care of any question you have across the healthcare spectrum. My day job, I'm an emergency medicine physician. So prior to joining Sumas, I've been at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City, part of New York Presbyterian for give or take 15 years, been on the front lines down there and really enjoyed that. So how would you say you advocate for telehealth, which is the topic of today's conversation in your position with Sumas Global? Specifically in my position with Sumas, I advocate for it in terms of the way that we are improving people's access to care and specifically access to specialty care, right? So specialty care is notoriously difficult to come across. And depending on where you live and where you're located, can be a little bit limited in terms of who you have an opportunity to talk to and really how you even navigate that and how you even get there. And what Sumas really does is broadens that funnel for people. We get people those specialty consults and those expert opinions from people that are very focused in whatever that you know esoteric diagnosis is, whatever that problem is, we can get you access to those folks and we can do it in a very timely manner. And it really helps guide people's care. It helps them understand part of it's education. It helps them understand what their medical problems are, what are what's happening, why they've been told what they've been told. And we help them think through how to go about it, what to do, what to what questions to ask. And then we literally get them to sit down with that, those experts in a virtual platform in order to be able to ask some of those questions and get some answers to things that they're wondering about, things that they need help with and try and get some direction in their overall medical care. And without telehealth, that wouldn't be possible you know, to do it in the both the quick and the sort of broad fashion in which we get this done. So, I mean, your experience, especially as a physician, what are some of the other benefits of telehealth? You know, telehealth is fast, it's convenient, it's less costly for all involved. You know, what's interesting about telehealth is so we, you know, at Cornell, we started doing it back in, I guess, give or take 2015. I think I'd started doing it in 2016 as a, as a physician, you know, just seeing patients on a telemedicine platform and on a virtual care platform. And the volume was give or take. You know, I think we were experimenting a lot in different ways that we could reach people virtually in, in different ways that we could do this, expedite people's care, whether they were actually in the emergency room and seeing people virtually in the emergency room to try and get them moving. And we could see multiple people simultaneously and in different ways. But we weren't really 
gaining a lot of traction. You know, and COVID was a fabulous testing ground for telehealth and telemedicine in general and really allowed it to take off. And and the benefits of telehealth and what we sort of, you know, preconceived notions of what we thought it was worth, I think really came through. And that is, yeah, it is fast. It's convenient. And it, it allows people access, you know, especially during COVID, people couldn't get to in-person visits. You know, going to the hospital was terrifying, right? You know, going to an emergency room. Yeah. It just wasn't even on the radar for some people that they just wouldn't even do it, but they could still reach us and they could still reach physicians this way. And so I think a lot of what we had thought telehealth was actually came to fruition. What would you say is the main difference between what telehealth looked like in 2015 when it started, like, as you said, versus today? I think the main difference is in 2015, 2016, people didn't trust it. You know, I think there was a a notion that it wasn't legitimate medicine to some degree, or maybe they just didn't really trust what would happen. And I think in COVID, we proved what we could do. You know, I think part of it is education. Part of it's the education both on the patient front as well as on the physician front. And I do think we still have some room to go there, right? You know, I think there's a lot of education we can do for, you know, physicians and starting, you know, actually we were looking at starting curricula back in, in the medical school timeframe now for telehealth, right? Because we think for physicians, telemedicine is going to be part of your career. 99, you know, you could probably pick a few subspecialties where it may not be a routine part of what you do. You could probably pick and choose a few things, but for the most part, some aspect of telehealth is going to be part of your career, right? And so it's really important, in my opinion, to start inserting that in the medical school environment so that people become comfortable with it. Because similar to the fact that there is good bedside etiquette, you know, when you're seeing a patient in the emergency room or, you know, I I keep referring to the emergency room because that's what I know, but, you know, wherever you're seeing a patient, there's an appropriate bedside etiquette. There's an appropriate website, what we call website etiquette as well, right? When you're talking to a patient via this medium, how do you maintain eye contact, right? How do you talk with your hands so the patient can still see your hands and things don't look funny off the camera, right? How do you really engage? How do you go about it? The other piece, and sorry, I think I'm diverging a little bit on you here, but (laughs) the other piece of the education that's so important and part of what's really changed, I think, since 2016 is understanding the physical exam right? And understanding how much we can really achieve with a physical exam in a virtual format. I can get a full set of vitals on somebody in a virtual format, right? Now that assumes maybe they have a pulse ox at home, which now courtesy of COVID, everybody does, (laughs) you know, and, you know, in our older adults tend to all have blood pressure cuffs at home, right? Maybe not the younger cohort as much, but that's something that is easy enough for everybody to access if they needed to, or you can go to your local pharmacy and get a blood pressure done, right? But I can get a lot of information. I can talk somebody through doing a physical exam on themselves, right? I can get a really good exam of the back of the throat by having somebody, it basically looks like they're swallowing their camera. You tell somebody to swallow your camera and say, ah, you can get a really great view of the back of the throat. So I think there's a lot of things that have, we built trust and we built trust both on the physicians and in the patient side in terms of what we can really accomplish with telemedicine in general. To what degree do you think telemedicine could be utilized by specialists specifically? Yeah, I, I think specialists are the group that have really come the furthest, courtesy of the last 18 months in terms of utilizing telemedicine and telehealth in general. I think a lot of specialists found that they could actually, you know, surgeons, for example, found they could do post-op visits in a virtual format, whereas previously that was a very foreign concept to them, but it actually, you know, it actually works and they can see the incision, which is essentially what they want to see, right? They want to see the patient up and moving. And they want to see the incision a lot of the times. And they can accomplish that via telemedicine. I think specialists speaking in sort of a, a broader perspective and, you know, specifically, especially getting some of the stuff that we do at Sumus, 
specialists can really cast a wide net when they use telehealth and telemedicine. They can reach a lot more people. I think one of the things that people know, but one of the sort of the rubs with physicians over time is, you know, physicians that are very subspecialized, it takes a really, really long time to get there. For example, some of my friends who are like cardiothoracic surgeons, right? You know, they're nine, 10 years deep post-medical school until they're even thinking about starting a practice, right? And that's, you know, years of general surgery, cardiac surgery, specialty training. And then if you throw pediatric congenital heart on top of that, throw in another two years there. So it, it takes a long time for these specialists to do what they do. And sometimes there are not that many of them. And they tend to be very focused in certain academic centers, which makes sense, right? Because that, that's where they need to do what they do. But with telehealth, they can expand their reach. And that's good for them. That's good for the patients. It's really good for everybody involved. So telemedicine has come pretty far in just a few years. But in what ways do you think telemedicine could be utilized in the future that's not occurring currently? Half of me thinks if I even brought up something that somebody's probably doing it somewhere, <laughs> which I think is sort of the reality with telehealth these days is that people are pushing the boundaries, which is great with all of this. You know, there's a fine balance between pushing the boundaries and then making sure that we're safe, you know, making sure that we're following appropriate HIPAA protocols, that we're making sure that patient's information is safe and that we're doing things in an appropriate manner. You know, there's a very fine balance with all that. I'd love to see someday where even some of the, some of the procedures can effectively be done from home, right? Imagine the day that you need a colonoscopy and you can prep yourself, stay at home, swallow a camera. The GI guy can just watch it on a video camera. Then that's that. And you go about the rest of your day. That could be amazing. But, you know, I, I just think there's so many ways that it's going. And I think we're just going to continually be surprised at what's happening in, in a good way. So I would say that the expansion of telemedicine as a result of the pandemic has exposed some inequities in terms of healthcare access. One group in particular that struggles is rural areas. So what do you think are some steps that need to be taken to ensure that population has better access? Good question. So when you mentioned the rural areas, you know, I think that is really where telemedicine started. It started a lot in reaching critical access hospitals, you know, where you would have sort of a main healthcare center and you would have a lot of smaller satellite hospitals around. And then the specialists, for example, neurology and stroke is a, is a classic example, right? If somebody shows up at a critical access hospital or a or more rural hospital somewhere with potential stroke symptoms, a neurologist can actually sign in via telemedicine and do a full stroke eval and then make decisions on whether or not to give TPA or other medications and, and help direct the care that way. Folks in rural areas have sort of been benefiting prior to many people from the telemedicine world. But I think probably what gets more to the access, sort of the crux of your question is that people in those rural areas sometimes don't even get to a hospital, right? Or, or getting to a primary care doctor takes two hours, right? Or getting to a specialist may take a day of travel, quite frankly. And I think that's where telehealth is huge because you can do an initial consultation, the specialist or the PCP, whomever can order labs remotely, can get that workup done before you have to show up in person. So you get everything done in one in-person visit with all the data you need, everything done. And that can really streamline people's care overall. Speaking of telehealth, NAHU submitted a letter last month to the co-sponsors of Senate Bill 1988, the Protecting Rural Telehealth Access Act, commending the bipartisan group for sponsoring legislation that would make the current pandemic-induced telehealth flexibilities, including audio-only telehealth appointments, permanent. Would you like to help? Ask your senators to support the bill now with our Operation Shout campaign included in this week's edition of the Washington Update. 
And in terms of the rural population's access to telemedicine generally, NHU has advocated for broadband expansion so that they can actually utilize the telehealth services, which is included in the bipartisan infrastructure package that Congress is currently working on. Another section of the population that is struggling with telehealth specifically are seniors and older adults who may be not used to technology. How do you think we could better assist them? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and I think, and bringing in the older adults, I really appreciate that because that's my sub area of interest is in sort of geriatric emergency medicine. You know, when we started the telehealth and telemedicine pitch back in 2015, 2016, we actually started like, we actually started doing it within our emergency department and putting patients in front of a video camera, essentially in front of a TV screen, instead of, you know, the typical queue waiting for physicians in the ED. And after a bit of time, we went back and reviewed the data and we had patients from when they turn an adult, effectively 18 up through 99 years old who did telemedicine visits with us or sort of virtual visits, you know, physically in the ED, but they saw the doctor in a virtual format as we were testing this out. You know, and looking at the data, older adults loved it. They loved the fact that it was one-on-one, them with a physician, the physician's not distracted, right? When we see them in the office or when we see them in the ED, I'm constantly turning around to sign EKGs that are coming by, that somebody's knocking on the office door, your back is to the patient as you're typing in the EMR, you know, it's just a chaotic environment. And half the time, the older adults can't hear anything right? They have, they have a hard time hearing, a hard time understanding, and there's just a time pressure around it. That time pressure seems to disappear over telemedicine. It's actually sort of fascinating. The telemedicine visits, as quick as they may be, make both the physician and the patient a lot of times feel like time is just at their disposal. They can talk for as long as they want, and there are not any other distractions around. And so we actually found that older adults love it, right? Then the question becomes technology and access. Older adults probably less likely to have a smartphone, right? May not have iPads at home, may not have other things. I I do think that's changing a lot with time as iPads become very helpful for older adults, even just for doing their morning crosswords and playing games and doing memory games and doing all the other things that really enhance an older adult's lifestyle. And a lot of older adults are blessed with family that will come and help set them up. You know, there are certain companies out there that provide iPads that are easy as just like one big green button that says, do this, and and they just push it and they get access to whatever they need. So I do think there's some challenges in there for older adults and older adults do have to be open to adopting this. But I think as time goes on, word is spreading among those communities at how valuable telehealth really is and all the frustrations they feel with in terms of, they feel in terms of, you know, being in an in-person visit and it takes them three hours to get there for a 15 minute visit. I mean, a lot of older adults, it takes them an hour just to get dressed, no less like transportation to get to the office, getting into the office, all that can be avoided with a telehealth visit. There's another population that we believe may benefit from telehealth. There have been studies that show folks in urban areas who do not own vehicles can have trouble getting to their in-person appointments. These transportation barriers can lead to rescheduled or missed appointments, delayed care. Is this something you found to be true in your experience working as a physician in a major metropolitan area? Yes, all the time. And, and, you know, and part of the problem is too, a lot of times they have to set up these transportation arrangements hours in advance. And depending on the flow of an office, the flow of an emergency room, whatever the issue may be, their medical visit may not be over and yet their transportation has arrived. And if they don't immediately go to the transportation, they're going to miss it. And that's that. And then they're not going to be able to get home. So short answer to your question is yes, it's a very real issue for folks. And I think telehealth does improve that in many ways for people. 
In addition to these inequities, another important aspect of telehealth expansion that is maybe a little less talked about regards state licensure requirements. So what do you think needs to be done to acknowledge state licensure requirements for different types of healthcare professionals and just change things to help streamline virtual care? State licensure requirements are sort of interesting in the field of medicine. I will admit I don't know enough historically to understand why they exist the way they do. So I'll, I'll frame it that way. I'm sure there's there's rationale behind it that I don't understand. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to admit that. I think medicine's different from law. You know, like law, for example, you have to be barred in a specific state, right? And that's because the code of conduct or the legal parameters at which you can practice law in a certain state vary, right? And, and states have their autonomy in how their laws work, et cetera. Medicine's different. You know, the Hippocratic Oath expands across the country doesn't change state to state. Theoretically, what we should be doing in medicine and, and the practice of medicine, sure, there's a little regional variation and there's some differences in what you see in different places. And some of the resources are a little bit different and people have to adapt to that. But for the most part, you know, we get together at national conferences and we all speak the same language, you know, and we're all trying to do the same thing and trying to provide the same support. And we learn from each other across state lines. You know, somebody in California may do something differently than I do in New York. And, it, and it's fascinating. And that means I can bring it back to New York and do that in New York and apply that in New York. And I'm not worried I'm going to hurt somebody. I'm rather using it because it's going to help somebody. It just hadn't crossed my radar in my small bubble of practice, right? So I actually think sharing knowledge across state lines and sharing the practice of medicine across state lines is really important because it opens our eyes to all the options that are out there and things that we may not have thought of in our own little bubble. That's how we learn. And that's how we improve care in general for people. And I think that gets back to why telehealth is so important with a company like Sumis and, and getting people the specialist access across state lines and being able to do that. State licensure requirements you know, do vary by state, you know, and typically, you know, I guess I'm licensed in four different states. So I've seen it across those states in terms of what has to happen for me to keep up my licensing. And the licensing yeah, it's interesting. Some states will have certain CME requirements, which are continuing medical education requirements, and those vary state by state. And I think some of that is, is driven by issues in those states, right? If there's a certain topic or a certain social issue that's coming up that they need physicians to be trained in for that state, sure, that makes a lot of sense. You could argue that every physician across the country should be trained in that issue. I'm not sure that's always going to be state specific, but there are things that physicians practicing in certain states should be aware of. But I think that can be streamlined. I don't think it has to be so specific as we're separated in that I can practice medicine in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and Florida. But if somebody, if one of my patients happens to be across in Pennsylvania or in Massachusetts or down in Georgia, I have to tell them to cross state lines and then call me back, you know, but I can physically be located in Hawaii, actually. You know, I can see patients if I'm located wherever. What matters is where my patient's located. So some of it just doesn't intuitively make sense. And I'm not totally sure why we can't streamline how that works. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed since we started that you think folks should hear? I guess the other point I would make is that, you know, with telehealth, as we've been learning things and as we've been growing and doing all these things, I think patients, physicians, everybody, they shouldn't compromise quality. Quality matters as much as ever. You know, we always think very much about quality when we're sort of walking into a massive academic institution or whatever hospital and there's marble and shiny floors and this, that, and the other. It's a different medium for that happening. And the visual field is set when you walk into certain offices and certain in-person places, right? And with telehealth, you don't get those same visual cues 
you know, we, we do try and modify our environments and try and make it seem as, as nice as we can. But I, I think ultimately the quality of your care should be just as high as it always has been. And I think it can be. There's no reason to compromise that. And I think we just have to make sure that we're maybe measuring that in slightly different ways slash watching for it in different ways and not letting that go. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly something that we advocate for is to make sure, of course, anything related to health, making sure that the quality of care is just as good. There's no reason for it not. And quite frankly, the quality can be exceeded. Visits are nice. And when patients are comfortable and in their own environment and in a place that's quiet and private, and they can really interact with you and they're not nervous because they're been shuttled around in somewhere that they don't know. I think the quality of the patient physician interaction is, is just that much stronger and has that much more fodder for being a good thing. I think we should harness that and keep going. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. Mary, what are we toasting to this week? This week, I think we should toast to telehealth as a way to improve overall access to care, break down geographic barriers, broaden the funnel of bringing people into specialty care and allowing physicians to really reach as many people as we possibly can in order to improve health and life and livelihood going forward. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.